Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Okay, so just when you guys are really comfortable, like chatting with each other, and you've been standing up and your legs feel better, I'm going to invite you all to come back and take your seats. Since we have new people here, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Barbara Sanofsky, and I've been a pastor in this community for a lot of years, and I am retired, but I'm not leaving. <laughs> I'm, I just don't attend meetings anymore, which is like the best hybrid ever. This is better than gasoline and electricity. I just want to say that. It's the perfect combo. I get to be here, you know, shake up a few things, complain about the noise like a real person. Uh, this morning I get to do something really, really special. I get to introduce Colin Stringfellow. And um, a lot of you know and a lot of you don't that in this community we have a teaching team. So while we have a teaching pastor who oversees the teaching team, um, every we, we rotate, you know. Uh, I get to teach probably every other month or so, and it's a beautiful thing. And then we have other teachers, and um, we're in a new season in so many ways, which makes me really want to say this about God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And part of his sameness, part of what makes him the same is that he's always doing a new thing. And I love that. I love the duality of that. I'm really talking about another hybrid here also. So this God who's always doing a new thing, um, I think is doing a new thing in all the churches. I know he's doing a new thing here. And we have this morning someone who's new to our teaching team. And I'm really excited to introduce him because I've known this guy when he kind of lived in his Volkswagen. Yeah, well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> Much to the chagrin of his parents who are in the room right now. Um, uh, we've camped with him. Um, I've cooked for him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and many Delicious. other young men who got into trouble week, every time we went camping. There was always problems. Um, and uh, he's a barista in the past. He is a coffee roaster. I have purchased his beans isn't that like the highest accolade you could give someone who's going to teach? <laughs> who's going to teach about God on a Sunday morning? Um, but here's the other part of Colin, um, who is a married man, married to Tori, two beautiful sons, Declan and Owen. Mm -hmm. And um, the beautiful part of him is that this man is determined to seek after truth, after wisdom. I'm not going to say knowledge. I'm going to say after wisdom. And in that process, he has known Jesus. He's walked away from what he's known. He's returned to what he's known. And he is learning all over again about who Jesus might be. And so he's going to share some of his wisdom with us <coughs> this morning. And I would really want to call out the scripture from Revelation. And I want to invite all of you, whether you're here in the room this morning or whether you're with us on Facebook or you're catching us on YouTube, if you have an ear, listen. Well, thank you for that. You make me tear up before I, uh, before I even get started here. Um, I'm a teary person, so that's just, you know, that's, uh, that's my genetics. But anyway. 
All right, so hi, I'm Colin, and uh, first and foremost, I am really glad to be up here. I'm so honored to be up here. This is a really, this is an honor for me, and I appreciate, um, I appreciate it because there's a lot of trust that goes into asking somebody to, to talk in front, and so I don't take that lightly, so thank you for that. Um, so I'll start with this. Uh, how many of you guys are familiar with the, 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 I don't know if it's famous, but it's a Christmas song by the Notorious B.I.G. and Bone Thugs and Harmony. Have you guys heard that one? No? Mm, that's weird. Nobody's heard that one? That's because it's not a Christmas song. It's called Notorious Thugs. But my family and my, my siblings, we listen to it during the Christmas season while we're going and looking at Christmas lights on Daisy Lane, and it's this really peaceful scenario, and then we have this song in the background. And I just love it. It's a great song, and it, and it has become this staple for Christmas uh, for me and for my, some of my siblings. I'll say some of my siblings. It's not fair to say all. And each year we do this, right? And, 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 and I'm, no way, I'm in no way suggesting from up here that you should go listen to it, right? This is not a, this is not a, great, this is not a great song, but it is a great song. Um, so this song is like a, has like this minute-long intro, right? And at 1.15, at the minute mark 1.15, you have this, this Notorious B.I.G. comes in with this really heavy line, Call me dangerous, right? Or at least that's what I thought it said for several years, and I spoke very confidently when I thought that it said that. Uh, I made the sense of this line, call me dangerous. I, I, it made sense to me. I, I kind of put it into its context, and I had figured out how, how the rest of the song is kind of shaped by this opening verse. Um, but then one night, I was sitting around at my brother's house, and my brother and my brother-in-law, we put the song comes on, and I, with all the confidence that I've always had when I sing that first line, call me dangerous, and they, the song pauses. What do you think that it says? They ask. And I say, I repeat this poignant line. Well, it says, call me dangerous. No, that is not what it says. Well, apparently what the song is really saying is armed and dangerous, which makes a lot more sense, which makes a lot more sense with the context of the song because it makes, in the verse, it makes way much, way more sense. It's a better line for this, for this verse. Uh, but it is, in fact, a warning, right? He's armed and dangerous. It's not, like I had thought, um, Mr. Notorious asking to be called by his preferred nomenclature, which is dangerous, right? Um, but I had, made line, I had made sense of this, and we have all done this, not necessarily with this song, I understand, but, uh, but with something, right? With a line from a song, a lyric, or a quote from a movie. We have, we have misquoted it for years and years and years, and then somebody who is very kind to you, somebody close in your life has said, you're, you're quoting that incorrectly, right? Uh, side note, if you haven't, um, you just have, you have timid people around you, and you need to seek out other people, because you are definitely hearing something incorrectly, we believe these lyrics. We believe these quotes and we, from these movies, and we, uh, we, we, we know them, we think them to be true of that, of that situation, and we create a context around them. We, we rewrite a narrative around it. And then once we hear it the other way, we can never unhear it. It has the ability to change the context from that point on. It has the ability to make us rethink the whole thing. I had this experience again when I was working on my master's program, and my teacher was talking about the Lord's Prayer. And so we're going to work through a little bit of that today. We're going to focus on two parts of the Lord's Prayer and how they shifted things for me and how I hope for you uh, they shift things as well. So we're going to look at the first part, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. We just went through this, and it's, it's this beautiful prayer that Jesus teaches his, his disciples to pray. 
And I'm going to focus on this first part, they, uh, this, well, the next verse, right? Thy king, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't know about you, but for some reason, for most of my life, I kind of just glossed over this, this line. It kind of just is situated in the middle of this prayer. You say it quickly. You don't think too much about it. But then if you pause and you really look at what's being said here, this is a potent statement. And we need to ask two things, right? It begs two questions of us. The first one is, what is the will of God? And the second one is, what is heaven? And uh, when we talk about the will of God, I'm going to come back to that because I think that it's really wrapped up in this concept of heaven. And so we're going to come back to that toward the, uh, toward the end of this. But what's heaven all about, right? If you're anything like me, well, then heaven has, uh, has been this, has, you've always thought of it as this elusive place, right? It's far off. It's unattainable except through death. And even then, it's dependent upon other things, right? It's dependent upon faith in God. But what if we take this, this elusive, kind of difficult concept and we, re- de- we deconstruct it into its most basic and, and easiest, to, e- easiest palatable form, right? That is, what if we just look at heaven this morning as, a, as the Bible project calls God's space? This is an easy way to understand it, right? God has a space, and it is clearly different than our space. God's space has order. It's desirable. God's space is, in short, the space in which God can reign fully and completely in community with his people. And we actually have a picture of this. We have a model of this in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, the garden. God strolls through the garden with his, with his creation. They have conversations. There's, there's peace there's joy. There is love that is beyond, that's overflowing, and everyone's naked for whatever that's worth. The garden is a space, is God's space, and it's the ideal space. God reigns fully and completely living in communion with his creation. And I'm going to repeat that a lot of times this morning. That's God's space. It's what he desires. But then, whoops, we mess up, right? We mess up, and now... Now we have God's space is divided. Now there is God's space, and then there's our space. And our space is chaotic. Where there once was love, we now have an abundance of hate. Where there was once joy, there is now sadness and pain. Where there was once patience and the ability to sit and relax in communion with God, there is now rushed, hurried lives. Where there was once kindness, we now have greed and selfishness, etc., and so on and so forth. And I think I've drawn this picture out enough. Our space is chaotic. And I think there are two natural reactions when it comes to realizing that contrast between God's space and our space, the order and the chaos. The first reaction, the first very, very natural reaction is, get us out of here, right? We look around and we feel the tension of how messed up it all is, and we want to get away from it. We want to get back to God's space. We want to leave the chaos and re-enter order. We have a desire to pack up and head to the pearly gates. That's the first natural reaction. It's very natural. The second one is we have a very, another very natural reaction is that we want God to use a magical wand and wave it and fix it or nix it, right? Why is the world so jacked up? Why doesn't God just make it better? He's able. He wants this. Why not just make it happen? But we have to stop and relook at what we're praying here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. So what is the will? 
Well, if I'm looking at all of this information, my guess is that the will is for the space, our space, and God's space to be the same space again. That is, God's, uh, the, the will of God is the reconciliation of God's people and creation back to him. I lost my place. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so here's where we're at then. We're trying to get back to this, this model of a garden, right? We're trying to get back to a place where God reigns fully and completely with his people. And this place is where God gave his creation work to do. He said, go and tend and propagate this garden. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to it. In the late 1950s, there was a, a scholar, his name was Ili, uh, Mercia Iliada, and he wrote a book uh, called The Sacred and the Profane. And in this book, Iliada kind of coins this term that really laid the groundwork for, uh, for several scholars that come after him. It was this really monumental work. I mean, it's referenced all the time in scholarship. Um, and it's, in this book, he coins this term, and he's trying to express how in so many religions, as he's looking across this, this you know, com- comparative religions, he's trying to exp- figure out why there, in so many religions, amongst all of the mundane, the world normative stuff, there are these pockets of divine. And these pockets of divine are, in, in most other groups, they're these momentary things. They're, they're temporary, right? They're momentary. These moments are marked by groups deeming certain places and certain things as divine. And these pockets, he calls them hierophanies. Now, hierophanies are a, um, they're important because the hierophany creates a difference between the divine and the mundane. And these two things, Mercia Iliata later calls the sacred and the profane. A hierophany, in, in short, is a touching down in the dwelling of the sacred in the profane. So, while Iliada kind of coins this term, it's not a new concept, right? We see it a lot. We see this concept a lot. He just kind of gives it this, like, flowery name. Um, but we see it in the Bible all over and over and over again. We see it in the garden, right? We just talked about this. We have this model of what it looks like for God to be dwelling with his creation, dwelling fully and completely. But then we have the tabernacle right? And the tabernacle offers another really significant model of what it looks like for God to dwell and reign with his people. The tabernacle, you'll remember, is this mobile tent that God instructed the Israelites to make in the desert. And I want us to note again that God had his community make it and tend to it. The tabernacle created a space for offerings, for sacrifices, a tangible structure that God's community could go to and that God was dwelling in. Exodus 25, 8 says that God says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. And it would be easy to take this at its face value, but there's something significant happening here. God's saying that this tabernacle is where he's going to dwell with his people, a hierophany. Not momentary. He's dwelling there. But looking back to the garden, this is a desire of his, to be with his people. The holy of holies, the sacred space where God touches down, is in fact God's space here in our space. With all of its order among all of our chaos. One of the main, uh, one of the main functions of the tabernacle, uh, other than God's space and our space, is the idea of forgiveness, right? So the offerings and sacrifices are efforts of the community to seek forgiveness. 
And with the tabernacle, you have yet another model of God dwelling and reigning fully and completely with his people. This mobile dwelling, uh, dwelling place of God. This hierophany was built by God's people, tended to by God's people, so that God's people could be in community with him again. And then we have another one. We skip forward. We have the incarnation, right? We are, we are familiar with the incarnation. Jesus' birth. Jesus comes and, and comes into this world, and Emmanuel is the name that he has gave, uh, given. And that name, Emmanuel, literally means God with us. Does it get more hierophany than that? I don't even think you can use that word in that, in that way, but I'm going to do it anyway. I was going to say hierophanical, and I was like, I don't, that's definitely not a word. But anyway, does it become, is there anything more of a hierophany than God with us, right? That's the literal description of it. So the incarnation, Jesus' birth is God dwelling with his people once again. But it's also a model. The church father Athanasius wrote a book on the incarnation. And he cleverly titled this book, on the incarnation. Uh, and it's, and it, he writes this little gem. All things have been filled with the knowledge of God. Christ was made man that we might be made God. Think about that quote, that we might be made God. I don't think that he's talking about hubris here. I think that Athanasius is actually alluding to something that Jesus speaks himself in John 14, 15 through 17, when he says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Here's Jesus promising the Spirit who will live with us and be in us. And this leads me to our last hierophany that I want to kind of discuss here. The Spirit through us. Note the movement, though. Land to space to person. The kingdom of God, the hierophany of God, has become less structural, meaning less this building, this place, and it's become more communal. These people, these hearts. Also note the expanse of inclusivity, right? The, those in the garden. The, it's only for the, God is only with those in the garden. Then God is with, in the tabernacle. He's with his people. And then it moves on to God uh, and Jesus, whoever is in contact with Jesus. This net just keeps getting wider. It becomes more and more inclusive. But how can we be agents of God's will? How are we supposed to be these hierophanies? What role do we play in the reconciliation of God with his creation? I'm so glad you asked these questions. These are very important questions. And it leads us to our next section that I want to talk about. We go back to this prayer, and it says, Give us today our daily bread. Now, I'm gonna, I want us, really quickly, I'm going to give a forewarning. There's going to be a lot of things on the slide. I'm going to be saying a lot of things. I apologize. I'm a teacher by nature. This is what I do. I apologize. So you're going to get a little taste of what, I, of what my students might get. So at first glance, nope, I need that slide. At first glance, um, this line seems like it's the most straightforward of all of them, right? It's self-explanatory, right? Today, we know that we have basic needs every day, daily. Daily, we know that these needs are going to come back up, right? We're going to need these things again. And bread, we just kind of like, in our minds, we maybe just switch that over. We just think immediately sustenance, right? Something, substance to live, right? 
bread, we know that we have to eat. So it becomes this like, catch-all word. That is, so today, give us the thing that we need to live every day, right? We kind of make, we make sense of that. And if you're anything like me, this, uh, then this was the, my basic understanding. We know that we have daily needs, we need to be sustained, and we're asking God to sustain us. But if we start to peel back the layers, we run into two problems. The first one is that daily might not be the best understanding of that word daily, right? And the second one is that bread, if we look throughout the New Testament, and if we look at all the ways that Jesus ever talked about bread, it never means bread. It almost never means bread. Let me put it that way. It rarely ever means bread. So we have these two problems. This, this very simple one-liner becomes kind of a little more complicated when we start to peel back some layers, right? So we're going to peel back those layers here. You guys ready? Here we go. All right, so let's take a look at this, the sentence in its Greek form, right? Ton, harton, hemen, ton, epiusion, dos hemen, semeron. Now, we have this Greek form, and on this slide, we're going to see, you know, on the top, you have, that's like how you would say it, right? And on the bottom, that's the, wor- that's the wording. If you weren't to translate it, you were just to read it left to right. That's what, it, that's what it says. The next slide is where it gets a bit more technical, but it becomes really important, and that is, the sentence has words that are used multiple times. The word for bread is used 97 times in the New Testament, artone. We have this word. We know this word, artone. If you're a Greek translator, you've seen artone 97 times. You're tired of that word. It's common. Likewise, the word semeron or today is used 41 times, right? Also a fairly common word, right? You've seen this. We know what it means. So you can, you, it's one of the ones that you just kind of, it catches your eye. That means today. Where we really find something bizarre is this strange adjective that just shows up, epiusion. Epiusion only shows up twice in all of Scripture. Once in Matthew and once in Luke. This is because the, those two Gospels are the only ones that share the Lord's Prayer, right? We do have it show up a third time in this document called the Didache, and the Didache is this early Christian document written around this, the first century, maybe early second century. That is the, the Lord's teachings through the 12 apostles, right? This is this document. And it's kind of, it's, I mean, it's super interesting. It's not very long. If you have time, you should read it. Um, but it's an interesting document, but it has nothing to do with what I'm talking about here. What I want to say is that it only shows up three times. So three times in all of ancient text, this word shows up. That's unique. That's something to pause on. That's something to stop and look at. Epiusion is a compound word, right, that, is, that Jesus essentially coins, right? And scholars are not sure if this word is one that Jesus makes up or if it's one that is something that's in the culture that then gets written down by Jesus when he uses it um, or written down by those who are writing down Jesus' words. But Matthew, Luke, and the Didache are the only places in ancient world text that this shows up. That's something to pause about. A compound word is meant to express a larger idea, Right? We have tons of these. Here's a list of them, right? Uh, we have a, oh, sorry. We go to the next slide where it has a list of the, there it is. Bromance, right? Glamping. We know these words, right? Uh, cosplay, ma- mansplain, chillax, staycation, all these words we have, and there's tons of them, right? My last name is compound words. Stringfellow, right? These are compound words. They express a larger concept. Um, we, th- we use these in our daily lives. I know that all of you guys are still bringing up skorts in your daily conversation, right? <laughs> I know I am, right? Um, so we know that Jesus is trying to express something here. He's using this compound word. He's expressing something here. He's combining these words to allude to a bigger idea. 
We know this because if you wanted to say daily, if you just wanted to say daily, Greek has a perfectly good word for that. We have words for that. Katamarina, right? We have that word. Two chapters prior in Luke. We're in Luke 11 when we look at the, the, the Lord's Prayer. In Luke 9, he uses the word daily. When do you pick up your cross? Daily, pick up your cross and follow me. We have it. How in the world did we get daily from Epiusion? I'm so glad you asked. Okay. In order to better understand that, though, let me the first talk about this guy named Jerome, or St. Jerome, right? St. Jerome was commissioned by, um, in 382 by Pope Damasus I to translate the Bible, particularly the New Testament. And he wanted the, the New Testament from Greek, right, which is difficult for people to read, and he wanted it to put it in the common language, Latin. And so Pope Damasus tells Jerome, hey, go translate the Bible. And so Jerome's like, got it. Goes and translates the Bible from Greek to Latin. And we have this new, we have this new translation. It's, it's not new now. Uh, it's several hundred years old. But uh, the, Latin, the Latin Vulgate, or the Vulgate, right? And as you can imagine, this was a huge undertaking. I know this because part of my Ph.D. program is that I have to go, uh, I'm finished with my, my, my coursework, and I can't start my dissertation. I'm stuck in this middle place where I have to do these things called research languages. Blah. Which essentially is that I have to learn uh, languages well enough to be able to translate documents, right? So I have to learn German, and I have to learn Greek. And I just took a German test on Friday morning. Um, and it, I had to drive out to school. I had to go sit down in a very plain room uh, with a couple of other people who are all being very awkwardly quiet because we're all nervous about taking this test. And we sit there, and you're only allowed to bring in a pen. Uh, they give you a piece of scratch paper, and you're allowed to have your dictionary, and that's all you walk in with. And then they give you this document. They give you this text, and they say, translate as much as you can in two hours, and you have to be quiet. Nobody can do anything. You can't look anything up. <sighs> it was stressful, right? So two hours. Two hours I'm sitting there translating, 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 and I, guess, and I get through. Uh, at the end of the two hours, I had translated three sentences. Now hold on. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a lot. It isn't, but they're not normal sentences, right? These are like sentences with like a thousand like commas in it, relative clauses, which I don't really understand what a relative clause is, so we'll see how I did. Um, but we have like, uh, but in my defense, there are these long, they're long sentences, and I got three sentences done, right? They're these huge sentences, but they're still only a fraction of the test, uh, the, the text that was given to me. And this is because there's more... In translating, there's more that goes into it than just putting words from one language to the next. If you've ever done any translating, some of you guys are, are this is not, like, English is not your first language, and so you translate often. Maybe you translate for people around you, and you understand that when it comes time, when it, what, the translator has to make decisions sometimes. And the decisions are, do you stick truest to the text or the, what's being said, or do you make it clearer for the reader? And these things don't always go together. So Jerome, he gets to this word epiusios, and he has a decision to make. Jerome is an indecisive person, so he splits the difference. In one, in Matthew, he's, he puts one word, and in Luke, he puts the other one. And so he says daily in one, and in the other, in the other text, he says super substantial. This is how he translates it. We'll talk about how he gets there in a second. But super substantial, this is, this is what epiusios means. Later, this gets dropped out. We don't see this in our, in our Bibles today, right? Mo and what normally has happened is that people were like, super substantial, that's a crazy word. I'm not going to keep on writing that. That's crazy, right? So NIV was like, just put daily. 
So that's fine. That's fine, right? That's fine. That's okay. But we have this word that this is, it, 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 but it takes away the bizarreness of this word. Epiusion is a bizarre word. Okay, I'm running out of time, so I want to I go quicker here. Okay, so other ancient translators like Cyril of Alexandria, they broke epiusion down even more. Epiusios can be broken down even more where it's this combination of uh, epi and ime, and you have this, now you have this thing that changes and it becomes epiusios. Anyway, what he, what Cyril of Alexandria translates this as, is give us today bread that is fitting for what is approaching. We're looking for super substantial bread that is fitting for what's next, what's to come. So what kind of bread can this be? Well, the second layer is, this is the next layer, right? The section uh, uh, that we start to peel back is uh, bread. Even when bread looks like it's supposed to be simply bread, it's not bread, right? It means something. It's providing a larger function. It might be hospitality. Jesus breaks bread with sinners. He breaks bread with tax, tax collectors. This is hospitality. This is reconciliation. Something bigger is happening. It might be part of a sacrifice, the looking and begging for forgiveness of sin, right? So you come to the, you come to the tab- tabernacle, you come to the altar, and you, you sacrifice bread, and, or you give bread as a sacrifice or an offering. It can also be a, a reminder of God's provision. There's this readily available analogy that pops out to us when we start to think about bread, and that's manna in the desert. The manna showed up daily. This is where my mind goes. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that some of you guys do too. This provision, this provisional that we're praying, right? Should give us bread, this provision of a daily thing. Manna was a necessity for survival. Man is even, isn't even given until the, the Israelites are complaining about the fact that they feel like they're going to starve in the desert. They're going to die. Why, why would you lead us out here to die? And, then Jesus, and God says, well, here's some food, right? Manna was continual. Until the Israelites reached the promised land, they were sustained. And manna comes, most notably, manna comes from God's space. Bread is used in a myriad of ways, but bread never, rarely ever, just means bread. This line unravels to show us that there is a lot more going on, and I would argue that this line is directly connected to the line before. We are asking for God's space to break into our space. We help to usher God's space into our space by being vessels for the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is the super substantial tomorrow's bread today. The Spirit is that which, that which is from heaven that ushers in God's space into our space. So it isn't wrong to use it as a template for provision or something for like looking for sustenance. It's not wrong to use the, the Lord's Prayer that way. But I would argue that the meat of this template is asking God to mobilize us to be agents of change and the mode by which the kingdom of God is actualized here and now in his community, in our hearts. We become tabernacles, mobile spaces of God's touching down and, the making, and making the necessary changes to our space to overlap with God's space. So what if we changed the lens and we prayed the prayer like this? I'm going to pray over you guys now. What if we prayed, God in heaven, help me to usher your kingdom here and now. Fill us with your spirit so that, we, so that where we are, there is also heaven. Teach us to forgive and to steer away from the things that represent our space more than your space. 
In Jesus' name, amen.